Hello, and welcome to the Find Your Calm podcast. I'm Noelle C. Guevara, and I'm a pastor, an educator, and writer, learning to navigate faith and family and being a person in this chaotic life. Here in season two, we're doing a deep dive into some of the ways that life can be anxiety-inducing and what it looks like to find your calm in the midst of it all. Over the past few episodes, we've been talking about recovery journeys, what it looks like to heal from hurt or trauma, how it impacts marriage, and how to find calm in that chaos. And today we're going to focus in on the journey of supporting someone in recovery, whether that's a spouse or a child or a friend or another loved one currently navigating the road to healing from hurt or trauma. That road might include their own hurt and trauma as well as the hurt or trauma they've inflicted on others. Doing our own work is hard, but supporting people we love who are doing their recovery work is hard too. And it's hard to find your calm and even know what a faithful step forward might be. Here's the truth. I don't know how to avoid chaos or how to prevent the anxiety that chaos inevitably causes, but I have had more than a little practice in finding my calm when life beckons anxiety instead. If you're looking for space to take a deep breath, study yourself, and discern what you need to move forward, you're right where you belong. Listen in for a few simple tips to find your calm and take your next faithful step forward. In our last episode, Matt and Todd from the Recovery Guys podcast shared with us what a recovery journey looks and feels like. They described with honesty and authenticity the chaos of that journey, but they also gave hard-earned and learned insight into how you can find calm in that journey. If you haven't listened to that episode, you do not want to miss it. A quick recap on what we mean by recovery journey. We often think of substance abuse when we hear the word recovery. And that certainly is an avenue of recovery. But when I talk about recovery or a recovery journey, I'm speaking of a road to healing from hurts and all the habits or destructive patterns that our hurts tend to lead us to. Our childhood wounds leave us with coping mechanisms, and these things may help us survive, but they rarely help us thrive, especially in our adult lives and relationships. So the playground bullies or the abusive parents or the harmful theologies or whatever. They might leave us with some habits. We shut down. We hold ourselves and others to impossible standards. Maybe we self-medicate or we hustle for approval. We keep moving. We manipulate or deceive. We react in anger. We harm ourselves or others. And the hurts that lead to habits can propel us to a rock bottom moment where we realize we desperately want to get well. This getting well process is a recovery journey. It is still hard for me to listen to Matt, who's my husband, if you're new to the podcast, share his recovery story because I walked that road alongside of him and it was really painful. I'm so proud of the work he's done. I'm so grateful that he committed to that long obedience in the same direction, quoting Eugene Peterson again. And I really am in awe of the healing, redemptive work that God has done in us over the last few years. But looking back to the days and weeks after Matt hit rock bottom, to the running start of his recovery journey and all the ups and downs of the road he walked. I could tell you that while I know it was a difficult process for him, it was also painful and at times, honestly, terrifying for me. I know what it's like to walk a recovery road with my husband. I also know what it's like to walk a recovery road with my child. In 2021, one of our daughters, who was 16 at the time, was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Her mental health spiraled downward fast, and she was hospitalized four times over the next year and a half. 
It took a lot of therapy and time for her brain and body to release some of the memories that painted a clearer picture for why she couldn't find her footing in her battle against her own mind and emotions. But that unfolding portrait propelled her on her own long and hard road to recovery and healing. So about the time my husband's recovery road had stabilized, my daughter's took a deep plunge towards its own rock bottom beginning. All that to say, I know a lot more than I ever wanted to about supporting someone through recovery. So I'm going to share a few truths about what it's like to support someone through the recovery journey. I'm going to be upfront and honest and authentic about it. And I don't want to scare you off, especially if you're at the beginning of this companion road. Hang in there. Because the next thing I'll do is share a few ways I found my calm. I am still finding my calm along the way so that I could stay in it, but also not lose myself in the midst of it. All right, ready? Truth bomb number one. Watching someone you love spiral is painful and disorienting. The disorientation really comes from the reality that you're going to know that they're spiraling before they are either aware or willing to admit it. With both my husband and my daughter, I asked the questions. I named what I discerned. I remember recommending therapy for Matt, who at the time took a hard pass, and supported therapy that was already in place for my daughter. You can see what's coming and still not be able to stop it. And friend, that is the worst, but it's not your fault either. You can't jumpstart someone else's recovery journey, no matter how badly you want to try. They have to put that first foot forward on their own. Okay, ready? Truth bomb number two. Watching someone you love hit rock bottom is terrifying. We think of rock bottom as like this clearly marked location, as in, oh, look, that is the bottom as marked by a rock. But I think that rock bottom is more of a series of floors that drop out, as in, oh, look, that is the bottom. Oh, wait, the bottom fall out. And oh, look, that is the bottom. Oh, wait, the bottom fell out, you'll know when you hit the rock bottom of rock bottoms in hindsight. But in the meantime, I'm so sorry. Just settle in for the ride. Truth bomb number three. Successful recovery requires self-centered sojourners. Note that I am not calling recovery selfish or the people who are in recovery selfish. Certainly not in like this negative name calling sort of way. The truth is that to do the work of recovery is to focus a lot of time and energy and reflection on yourself, your memories, your experiences, your tools, your resources, your mindsets and coping mechanisms, your actual sense of self. This is really important work and it will eventually lead to healthier relationships and an awareness of oneself in relationship to others. But for right now, you as the companion or caregiver or loved one to a self-centered sojourner on the road to recovery, you're not going to be centered on their journey. They will take and receive the lion's share of attention and resources, and you will have to be okay with that. This doesn't mean that they can walk all over you, disrespect you, or ignore healthy boundaries. No, that's not the point. It just means that they will be focused on themselves first throughout their sojourn through recovery. I'm using the word sojourn here because it denotes the temporary status of this journey. The stage won't last forever. Depending on the relationship moving forward and the work you do in your own journey, there can be a better balance of needs around the bend. Okay, so I hit you with the hard truths. How are you feeling? 
Normally I end with the practice, but today we're going to do just a little mini practice, a self-check-in right here in the middle before we move on to some next steps. Close your eyes if you can. Take a deep breath and get into a comfortable seated position. Scan your body, noticing any tension along the way. What feels tight or tense or activated? Now inventory your feelings, naming what stirs up deep inside of you. As you reflect on the truths that I shared or even on the person that comes to mind as we talked about loved ones in recovery, what's a feeling you can access? Simply complete the sentence, I feel. Now place a hand or both hands over your heart as you inhale slowly and deeply, then exhale even more slowly. As you repeat that breath, relax any muscles that you noticed were tense. Repeat that breath again and recall the feelings you named, releasing them with your exhale. All right, hopefully this pause helped ground and steady you. We're not trying to bypass or avoid our emotions here, but we do want to recognize them in a way that honors them while releasing the tension they may create in your body. If you need to, pause and repeat this practice anytime throughout the episode. So now that we've worked through some hard truths and released some tension, let's turn our attention to some hopeful and some helpful steps that can carve out some calm in the chaos of this companion journey. Step one, identify who is the journey guide and who is not. And here's a hint, the not guide is you. Okay, one of my fatal flaws is my desire, I would even say at times my need, maybe compulsion's a better word, to fix things, including people. If there's a problem, I wanna spring into action, usually to spring away from my feelings of anxiety, overwhelm, and general discomfort. So when my husband, or especially my daughter, was spiraling, I wanted to roadmap the journey that would get them fixed up and on their way, and who better to lead them than me? Honestly, as it turns out, anyone but me. Part of the work of supporting a loved one through recovery, if they have invited you along the way, is to help them find guides who are not deeply and emotionally invested in their success or failure. If your loved one is starting this journey with a clear boundary that separates you from their journey entirely, I can imagine that's painful. And the best you can do is support them from a distance by honoring that boundary. I really am grateful for the honor of walking this road with both Matt and my daughter. And I'm even more grateful for the people who've led them well. Therapists, doctors, the recovery community of CR, including the landing for my daughter. I stepped aside and I walked alongside of them and let their teams of professionals prescribe the next steps. For my husband, obviously as an adult, he took a more proactive role in researching and making decisions about everything from appointments to resources. For my daughter as her parent, I took on the responsibilities that were necessary for me as her mom, and I balanced those with my husband, Matt, as well. We obviously led and guided her along the way, but I leaned into the support and guidance of every professional and program that was available to her. Sometimes that meant going against my anxious tendencies to control or quote unquote protect, because doesn't that sound better? I still had and have a very active role in her recovery, but I walked alongside of her instead of out ahead, telling her where to go and what to do. 
So if you have a loved one starting or continuing a road to recovery, identify who their guide is, get out of their way, and walk alongside of them in whatever role you're responsible or invited to play. I'm going to meander a little here to step 1B. Can I do that? I guess I'm the boss of this podcast, so why not? I haven't given a lot of spiritual counsel on this podcast, opting instead to guide you through some spiritual practices. And I do this intentionally, in part because if you're someone who loves and follows Jesus, I want to create space for him to guide you instead of me telling you where he wants you to go. But in this conversation around who is guide and who is not, I'd be remiss not to speak to the ways that Jesus has been so present and faithful to guide me through this journey. As we've gathered resources, supports, and guides for our daughter, Jesus has been faithful in his promise to welcome my weary and burdened self to him, where he's given me rest. I've wrestled with my faith through my husband and my daughter's recoveries. I've lamented and shouted, why, on repeat. And to be honest, I'm still wrestling, still lamenting, still shouting, why, on repeat. I am honestly struggling to reconcile some things with Jesus at the moment. And there's questions I want answers to, but in the meantime, there is a peace that outpaces my understanding, and I know it's the presence of Jesus. So there's my step 1B. Moving on officially to step 2. Learn how to check in. This step really came out of my daughter's journey, but I wish I learned it earlier because I think it would have been helpful with my husband as well. One of the hardest parts of walking alongside someone in recovery is navigating this balance between cultivating openness and hovering. Someone in recovery is going to have good days and bad days and really bad days. They're going to make progress and then relapse. Open, honest conversations are really important. Asking good questions is helpful, but that can become a cover for an anxious hovering presence that's less about fostering openness and more about settling anxiety. Just being honest, I ask a lot of questions when I'm worried about my daughter. And I can say those questions are for her, but the truth is that they're really for me. On the flip side, again, especially as a parent of a teenager, I don't just get to take her word for it when she says she's fine and blows me off. But pestering her with questions doesn't help either of us. After one of her hospital stays, part of her safety plan upon return home was to do a nightly check-in. They did a check-in every day while she was in the hospital, and so she just does the same check-in with us. She rates things like anxiety and depression on a scale of 1 to 10. My advice, if you want to adopt a regular check-in with a loved one and they're open to the suggestion, is to work with them and maybe even a professional, like a therapist or a psychiatrist, to develop a check-in system that makes sense for them. If Matt and I had developed a check-in system, I would have worked with our marriage therapist. Honestly, even as I'm sharing this, I'm realizing that even though he and I are in a better place and he's really in a better place, this could still be a really healthy practice for us, even as like a preventative measure. So making a note to self to talk to Matt about this, but I digress. Let's move on to step three, take care of yourself. Okay. I know, I know self-care, self-compassion, blah, blah, blah. Listen, Like I said earlier, recovery is selfish and your loved one is going to hopefully be very focused on themselves and their recovery. That's a good thing, right? And depending on how close you are to them and their recovery, they may require a lot of your time and your resources and energy, or you may have to take things off their plate that normally they did. And that's going to take your time and resources and energy. 
So at times you're going to feel like you're circling the drain of their recovery. You're going to feel like their trauma or hurt is a black hole that you're going to lose yourself in. Recovery is going to be exhausting for your loved one, but it's going to be exhausting for you too. And you might believe the lie that you don't need the same amount of support or resources as they do. But you do, in fact, need copious amounts of support and resources. Trust me on this. If the person in recovery is in your house, friend, get your behind in therapy. If the person in recovery is naming your behaviors or your choices as a thing they're recovering from, friend, get your behind in therapy, even if you think you don't need it. Actually, especially if you think you don't need it. If you're in close relationship with someone in recovery, then you're going to need rest and time and care for the road ahead. You'll need supportive friends who can pull you out of the drain and away from the black hole. Your loved one is going to need you and they're going to need a lot from you. And you will need people who can pour back into your empty cup and who can answer your questions and help you process it all. And again, especially if the person in recovery is in your house, then their journey is yours too. That journey is going to take time and energy and resources. So you're going to have to clear out some things that take your time and energy and resources. Don't expect your capacity to be the same as your friend or your coworker or your PTO buddy. Don't you dare compare yourself. You are working a long shift in the triage unit and maybe they're down the hall getting a checkup and those things, they are not the same. Triage is about navigating emergencies and the stakes are high and everything low stakes goes on the back burner until later. Those are my bossy words. You should listen to them. (laughs) So I burned out of Matt's recovery and into the first leg of my daughter's recovery, having worked and parented and lived life with very little margin. And I was fine, which is to say that really I was exhausted, but coping with all of my skills. And while on the outside, I was doing okay on the inside, I felt like I was one more floor drop from ending up in the hospital myself. So I took some more drastic measures in the form of time off of work and time away with my daughter. We traveled with friends to the mountains and the ocean and back again. And I recognized the privilege in this. And the truth is that I had, had I taken some smaller steps to slow down and rest, maybe just get away for coffee with a friend, I probably wouldn't have been so desperate for a complete break from real life. I plan a little more intentionally these days, phoning a friend who makes me laugh planning things to look forward to on the weekend, sharing more of the household tasks, reading fiction, just little things like that make me feel like myself when life is screaming that being myself isn't enough. This journey will beckon you to lose yourself in it. Fight back. Take care of yourself by investing time into the people and things that make you feel like yourself. And honestly, that might be the hardest part, the fighting back, the finding and accessing the things that make you feel like yourself. Because if you're anything like me, you might not even remember what it's like to feel like yourself. I have more steps ahead that I haven't even learned yet, I'm sure. But these few faithful steps of identifying guides and learning how to check in and taking care of myself, they've led me forward to the place where I am now. I don't know what's ahead. Gosh, I wish I did, right? but I do know what has carried me this far. I've lost horizons, I found my bearings, and I found even myself through it all. So today I'm gonna invite you into a closing practice with the intention of helping you find your bearings through naming 
and grounding yourself with the things and people that make you feel like yourself. Another way to say this might be to reconnect with your core self, that part of you that's most calm and centered, most generous and at peace. So get back into that comfortable, grounded position, sitting into your chair, feet on the floor if that's possible, taking a generous inhale and a generous exhale. Now I want you to envision your core self, the side of you that feels most comfortable in your own skin. For me, that side of me tends to come out on vacation or in the early days of summer when I'm a little less intense or in need of control and a little more free-spirited and playful. Visualize yourself in your best moments, not your most successful or your most productive moments, but your most comfortable and connected moments. What are you doing? Who are you with? What gives you joy or purpose? Invite God's spirit to help you discern these things so you can see them clearly. As you hold that picture in your mind's eye, I want to remind you that you were created to flourish, that God formed you and called you good and desires good things for you. The way this world tugs and tears at us can push our good and core self into hiding or activate ways of coping that are hurtful, especially to ourselves. Settle into yourself now. Maybe place a hand over your heart and welcome that part of you that was formed and called good by God. Give thanks for two or three things, big things or small things that make you feel like yourself. Acknowledge that God is the giver of all good things and ask him, how might he be inviting you to not just notice or long for these good things, but actually lean into them? Abide in God's presence, receiving his gifts, and make a plan with God if it feels right to cultivate more abundance in your life by spending more time with these things or these people that just make you feel most like yourself. I hope this practice of reconnecting with yourself and the things that make you feel like yourself has been grounding for you today. As you walk a long road of recovery with a loved one, I hope you remain connected with yourself along the way. Thank you for joining us today for season two, episode seven of the Find Your Calm podcast. I hope you were able to unburden yourself to get your bearings, find your focus and begin to enjoy or at least truly experience that life that's within and around you. Life is chaotic. We know this to be true, but even in the midst of chaos, you can find your calm and take your next faithful steps forward. This week, I'm going to be sharing more over on Instagram about our evening check-in, how it helps us find calm in our family, and how it can help you as well. So if you haven't already, give me a follow and let's continue this conversation together over there. I'm hoping I can pull in my husband or my daughter, maybe for a live or something to talk about what it was like to walk this journey together. I don't know. We'll see. Fun things on the gram. Hang out with me there. Until next time, I'm Noelle C. Guevara, and I'm so grateful to be your host and guide as we navigate the chaos of life together.